Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Today we're talking about money. Who's excited? Who, like, you know, you're like, yes, finally, we're talking about something real. None of this Jesus Bible stuff. Now we're talking about money, right? I don't know if anybody's like that. That's not necessarily me. Proverbs has a lot to say about money. Let's start with some of my favorites. <clears throat> Proverbs 13.8 says, The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. I think there's a simple lesson there. If you don't want to get kidnapped, don't have a lot of money, all right? Is it called kidnapping when it's an adult? I don't know. But anyway, don't do that, okay? Here's another weird one. You ready for this? Proverbs eleven sixteen: A gracious woman gets honor and a violent men get riches. So there's that. <clears throat> I'm literally not going to say anything else about it. Just chew on that for a while. Uh, as we've said for a long time uh, throughout this entire series, Proverbs are poetry to chew on. It's really difficult to take a, like, everything that Proverbs says about money and distill it down into like one little sentence and just be like, hey, here it is. Because instead, Proverbs actually says a whole lot about money. I had like two pages of verses that I'd collected from Proverbs, and I didn't even have them all. Uh, these were just ones that were like possibilities for this sermon that I had worked up. Um, it's really, really crazy how much it says about it. And it's funny, you know, I made a joke earlier about, like, you know, let's just talk about Jesus and not money. And yet, like, here from even in the Old Testament, they have a radically different type of economy than we have. Like, you know, they don't operate the same way that we do in just so many millions of ways. And yet, as this book of Proverbs is being passed down through the kings, through the generations, and they're saying, like, hey, king, you're coming up. You're a young man. What's going to help you to really, like, do well and, and rule wisely is reading these Proverbs. And many of them, a very high percentage of them, are actually about money. Money affects our life very greatly. And even more than just uh, money affecting us, the way that we feel about money, the kind of relationship that we have with money, affects our life very, very seriously. It's going to affect the way that you make so many choices and you think about what's yours and what's not and the way that you should live your life. So what I want to do today is just take all of these Proverbs, um, and we're going to hit like a bunch of them today. We're going to sort of filter it all through the one that Danielle read earlier. We're going to take all of these Proverbs and really just ask ourselves the question, do a little bit of self-assessment. I think you call it an audit when there's money involved. So you're going to do a self-audit actually and say like, what is my relationship with money? Maybe start with this. If money was your friend, what kind of a friend would it be? Is it the friend that you're, like, anxious about whenever they show up? You're like, oh, my goodness, what are they doing here? Is it the friend that you're nervous as to whether or not they will actually show up when you need them, right? Sometimes that's our budget. We're like, ah, we're supposed to meet today, money, but I don't see you anywhere. Uh, some of you, it's like that friend that you text every single day to talk about the Broncos or something. Some of you, money is your, your spouse, and that's a little bit weird, right? It's like the first thing that, like, you see when you wake up in the morning, last thing you see uh, when you go to bed at night. Uh, I was thinking about this for myself. I think money for me is like that friend that you're like glad or that I'm kind of like glad that they're alive but I don't really need to see all that often do you guys have any of those friends maybe I'm just a bad person to even own those kind of friends I don't really know but uh you know it's like when they do come around sometimes it's good and we hang and I think to myself money you know what we should get together more often this is nice right like I enjoy this you're not so bad right 
And then they show up the next time, and they brought in a new girlfriend, and her name is Car Troubles. And then she asked me to meet her friend, and her name is Health Problems. And then I'm like, no, 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 we don't need to meet. I pay insurance. And she's like, no, I'm sorry. We still got to talk, buddy. And I'm like, no, 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 what about the copay? And she's like, who's paying the other part of the copay? And I was like, I don't, honestly, I don't know. And then I was like, but maybe the deductible, maybe that'll help. And she's like, what are you deducting from? And I'm like, I don't know the answer to that either. I'm sorry. And I'm like, but I'm paying into insurance. That counts for something, right? And she's like, not really. No, no, it doesn't. We're still going to need a lot of money from you. And then I'm like, money, why'd you bring these people around? Come on, what's going on? That's my relationship with money. Anyway, I went way too deep into that sort of idea of exam- or personifying money. At some level, though, you have some relationship with money. It's either a healthy relationship or it's not. And all I'm trying to invite you to do today is ask, is it a biblical relationship with money? I believe the Proverbs, and specifically this little section uh, that we're reading today, actually gives us a good idea of how we can have a biblical and God-honoring and wise relationship with money. Here's our uh, main section of verses today. It comes from Proverbs chapter 30, uh, 7 through 9. This is near the end of Proverbs. Um, and most of Proverbs, if you've been tracking with us, come from Solomon. This one actually, uh, they actually cite to someone else. All right, so, uh, and I'll talk about that in just a second. But here's the, the passage. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. This is some of the wisdom that is attributed in Proverbs to a guy named Agur. I don't know how to say his name. I even practiced it before this. It is embarrassing. It just it sounds super country when I say it. A-G-U-R. It's very, very strange. We're going to call him Aggie, if you guys don't mind. Uh, and this reads very much like a prayer. Uh, like he would practice this prayer regularly and even pass it down uh, as Proverbs, as wisdom to, only, uh, to other people. In fact, this is the only prayer that we see in the entire book of Proverbs that we can really identify. And we don't know much about this Aggie guy other than these collected sayings, but I get the sense that he could be a guy that we could relate to. Here is his introduction at the beginning of Proverbs 30. It says, The words of Agur, son of Jake, the oracle, the man declares... I am weary, O God. I am weary. I like this guy already, right? He's tired like us. I am weary, O God, and worn out, which I always thought was just like a southern colloquialism or something like that. Apparently, even Aggie used it. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. All right. He's relatable, I think, right? Solomon, wisest person that has ever lived. Aggie opens up and he's like, surely I'm too stupid to even be a person, right? So he's like seeking that wisdom. I think we can get behind that. And that's why right here he's like leading us into this prayer. And he's saying like, God, I really want to be wise. And I want to be wise about the way that I use my money. And so this is his prayer. We're going to break this down into three different sections Uh, and sort of ask the question, what kind of a relationship should we be having with our money? And the first thing that I want you to recognize from this passage is that Aggie here has a contentment with what God gives, a contentment with what God gives. He asked that he would never have the extreme of wealth nor be in poverty. He prays this very specifically, give me neither poverty nor riches. Do you see the humility that must be built into this verse? Like, first off, he's, he's, like, recognizing something. He's taking it for granted that many of us don't even really think about, that, like, ultimately, your income level is decided by God. 
right? He doesn't open up and say, like, God, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to get that money. You know what I'm saying? No, he says, like, God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Ultimately, you're in control of what income bracket I'm even in. And he's admitting in this that he would be content with somewhere in the middle, right? He painted the two extremes, riches on one side, poverty on the other. That's a pretty wide berth in between those two things. In fact, I would venture to guess that most of us are probably in that category, right? It's all kind of relative and comparative or whatever, but just sort of like living in America, having most of our needs met and stuff like that, but not being sort of like obscenely wealthy. We're probably somewhere in between that poverty and riches uh, kind of place. This is also the attitude of the earliest followers of Jesus. We see this pretty clearly, actually, from Paul writing to the Philippians in Philippians 4. He says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me but had no opportunities, writing to the Philippian church saying, like, hey, you, you gave to support me. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Wait a second. Where did the, like patron verse of the NBA sneak into this. How did that happen, right? Like, right after talking about money and contentment, surely that's not where that's supposed to go, right? Those guys are all billionaires when they're writing this on shoes that have their name on them. Anyway, isn't that crazy, right? Like, there, that's where that verse actually comes from. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, right after Paul is talking all this stuff. And if you know anything about the story of Paul, this guy has been shipwrecked, this guy has been beaten, this guy has been put in jail, and he is writing to the Philippians. He's saying, like, I'm actually pretty content. I'm actually pretty comfortable. Whether I have a lot, whether I have a little, I I can do all right. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What's interesting to me is that Paul seems very zen here, right? Like, this is like, you know, it's, it's drifting towards some sort of sense of, like, Buddhism almost, it sounds like. Paul's like, I'm achieving some sort of higher state of being that I can be content in spite of my circumstances, which is really like the appealing call of Buddhism. I don't know if you've like looked into this very much, but basically like the idea is like circumstances are happening around you, and the more that you can detach yourself and withdraw from them, the more content you can actually be. But here's the one thing I want you to notice, and I want to be very clear on this. By most accounts, Paul was not Buddhist, Okay. Paul from the Bible, right? That was a joke. This is a sad crowd today. Anyway, Paul was not Buddhist. That was a pity laugh. Thank you for it. I will take it. Paul was not Buddhist. So how then is he finding this contentment? If he's not trying to find this like higher path to enlightenment by detachment from all things, how is he actually finding it? I think you can see it right there in the very last verse. That after talking about having a lot or a little, hunger, need, uh, whether he has all of his needs supplied for, whether he, he feels like he is in want, he is content, then he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, he kind of takes this like whole discussion of whether you should have a lot of money or a little money or a lot of stuff or a little stuff. He takes all of that and says, it doesn't really matter about that as long as I am able to do what I'm supposed to do. I can do what I need to do because it is God who is actually strengthening me in that. Which I think tells us a truth about money. That if your focus is more on God and what he wants you to do, then it's easier to be content. You've all been there, right? Like, have you ever been, like, really worked up over some sort of, like, financial decision and it just, like, consumes your life? I mean, I feel like half of my adult life has been making terrible decisions about cars 
we're always buying terrible cars and then they're dying and then we're trying to figure out, well, what should we do about this? And I find myself in these seasons where I'm like flipping through like, you know, cars and Craigslist and coming up with cockamamie schemes and stuff like that. Like, I'm not happy when I'm doing that. I'm not satisfied. I'm definitely not content. Looking at cars just makes me unsatisfied with the car that I have. Paul is showing us here that focusing on Jesus, spending a life that is just chasing hard after what he wants you to do, is actually a life of contentment. Now all of a sudden, any of your financial decisions that you have to make are all about how you can best serve this one goal of serving the kingdom. And that is actually what leads to contentment. So here's financial audit question number one. And I want you really to think through. This is sort of the participation part. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to announce this or show your neighbor your budget or anything like that. Uh, I really just want you to think through these questions. Make this practical to you. Make this not just a chance for me to yammer on about money and a guy named Aggie. So the financial question number one, financial audit question is, are you content with what you have? Are you content with what you have? Are you satisfied in life? Are you always looking for the next big thing? Are you always trying to make more money? Are you jealous of people who have more of whatever it is that you want? Are you feeling insecure? I feel like it's easy uh, to think about this whole discussion of money in just terms of like greedy people that are like, you know, trying to buy like a Bentley or something like that. But you can be uh, just as negative and unhealthy in your attitude about money if you're just worried about it in terms of security and safety and storing up things. So are you content? The second attitude that Agur shows us about money is that he has a desire for only what he needs. He says this, which I really like, feed me with the food that is needful for me, food that I actually need. And it's obvious that he's not just talking about food here, right? This is in the context of wealth, and he's saying, like, hey, just supply for me exactly what I need. Give me the needful things, not more, not less. This is actually very similar to the Lord's Prayer that Matthew, I mean, that, uh, yeah, that Matthew records for us in chapter 6 of his gospel. He says, Jesus says, as he's teaching his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is modeling for us that it is a good and right thing for us to pray to God for our needs to be supplied. That's pretty cool, right? This is in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, like tucked right there in the center of it. And he's saying like, hey, it's a good thing for you to look to God and be like, God, I would like to eat today. Please, can you supply that to me? That's not something that God is opposed to. But notice the wording there. He says, give us our daily bread. This is very obvious, like a a, uh, reflection, a sort of hearkening back to uh, the days when the Israelites were wandering in the desert and manna would come down from heaven, this sort of like magic bread. And it was this really cool thing, and I think God was teaching us this like huge object lesson through this when he was showing us that like the manna would come down, the Israelites would go and scoop up what they needed for that day, and a few of the Israelites were like, oh, snap. I'm probably going to need some more tomorrow. I don't trust this whole bread delivery system that's coming down from the heavens. So I'm going to gather up some extra. And they would put it in a clay jar and be like, hey, uh, they didn't have refrigerators back then. So they just, you know, were storing it wherever. They put it away. And then the next day they'd wake up and that bread was rotten. And more bread was coming down from the sky. God was showing them even in the middle of the desert where there shouldn't be any food at all, he was going to provide for them. And to try and take up more than you needed was greed. It was like pride showing, hey, I don't trust in God. I'm going to trust in myself and my own abilities. So when Jesus says, God, give us our daily bread, when he models that prayer for us, he's reminding us of that fact that God is going to provide for us exactly what we need. And trying to take more than what we need 
is always going to just lead to disappointment. There needs to be a shift in us. Um, every single year, we have uh, college interns. You may have seen them. Uh, they, they wander around. Uh, the older you get, the more they look like middle schoolers. Uh, but, so if you see any like young children just milling about, that's probably one of them. Um, <clears throat> and I have the joy and pleasure in sort of like doing orientation to the city and stuff like that. We give them this little thing called a PEX card. It's like a, uh, a debit card that they can use for their needs through the summer. It's intended for them to be able to like uh, use public transit and to pay for their food and stuff like that and just sort of like survive through the summer. Uh, you're in, you know, these students are in college, so they have a lot of opportunities they could spend through their summer. And so what we're trying to do here is saying, like, hey, it's not unwise for you to, like, miss out on a summer job and stuff like that. Like, we're actually going to provide for some of your needs. And we give them this big speech at the beginning, and we say, like, hey, you have to decide how to use your money or this money that we're giving you through this PEX card for the kingdom and the work that you are called to do. Like, this is not, you know, just something for you to just go and have fun in the city of Denver. This is like your, your ministry budget for the summer. I do this speech every year, and I kid you not, uh, there are, is always a student that, like, halfway through the summer is just completely out of money. And I'm like, okay, what happened here? We try and do some diagnostics. The worst one, I think, was uh, one year, actually. We went to the Rockies game. We're like, man... You, you guys went through orientation. We're going to go to the Rockies on Friday night. And I see this kid walk up, and he's got one of those clear bags from the Rockies store. He has two hats in there and a Rockies jersey from the Rockies store. I mean, the most expensive place on the planet to be able to buy that stuff. And sure enough, he had used his PEX card. Like, he was, like, already halfway through for the summer, right? That blew, like, most of his budget. There was another kid that sat in his room and found out how to get his PEX card onto DoorDash and was ordering Fat Shack of all places, like, Fat Shack on DoorDash through your PEX card is just a terrible kind of sentence and idea, right? But anyway, uh, most of them actually learn a really cool and important lesson. And it's astounding the way that I like see the gen senders, every, that's what we call our interns, every summer uh, finding creative ways to sort of like live within their means. Many of them actually end up using their PEX card to serve their neighbors. Um, you know, like last year, uh, I think we had a group that was like feeding the entire dorms pancakes all funded through their like PEX card. It was just astounding, right? And the reason why I bring that up <clears throat> is not just to, like, you know, semi-threaten our gen senders and not to be fools, right? The reason I bring that up is because most of the students, like I said, use it as a means to meet people, to share the gospel, to live in community, to enjoy Denver. And the question that I think we need to ask ourselves, the question that I ask myself every orientation is, am I doing that with the income that I've been given? Like, it's cool, we give them two months and we say, hey, this is a missionary experience, and then we say, go back home, and then I get my paycheck, and I'm like, cool, what kind of cool stuff can I buy with this? How can this satisfy me? How can this make me happy and healthy? I'm going to hit up the Rocky store, right? I'm not, you know, the Rockies are great, and you should patronize them, maybe. They're terrible right now. But anyway, uh, you should maybe buy, the, buy a jersey. Maybe they'll be better next year. I don't know. I'm not against the Rockies or jerseys or whatever. I'm just saying, like, very few of us actually take that kind of intentionality and say, like, God, I know that, like, you know, there's a temptation for me to say that this income is mine, and it's for me to make myself happy, and that's all that I have it for. But how many of us actually are willing to sit down with God and say, like, God, this is my ministry budget that you've given me. Like, this is what you have offered to me to be able to serve you and your kingdom better. I want to invite you, especially if you're, like, a practical person, maybe this is just a good time of the year 
Maybe you got tomorrow off if you're one of those lucky, you know, workplaces or something like that. Maybe you sit down and just crack open your budget. Take a look at it. Maybe if you've never done a budget, maybe this is a good time to start that. And actually sit down and do your budget with Jesus. And instead of asking the question with all of your income, like, okay, so how much do I save? How much do I put into trips or events or a house or paying for, you know, extra, like, lives on a video game or whatever it is that you like to spend your money on? And then say, like, so then how many sliver or how much of a sliver of a percentage can I give to the kingdom over here? Maybe actually just sit down and say, Jesus, all of this is yours. All of this is yours. I am offering it over to you. God, tell me where to put it in these different budget categories that I'm lining out. And instead of saying, what's going to provide security and safety for me in the future? Instead of saying, what's going to provide happiness and satisfaction in life now? Instead of saying, what's going to like lead me down the best career path? Actually say, God, I want to serve you and your kingdom. How can this pot of money that you have offered to me actually do that best? Here's what I've experienced personally. <clears throat> you guys all know me. I'm pretty wealthy. Nobody even laughed at that. You know, see how you guys think of me? He's rolling large in his vans up there. <clears throat> I have noticed uh, when I'm in a season of being completely open-handed with Jesus, when I actually have, like, the spiritual wherewithal to actually say to Jesus, like, God, all of this is yours. I am not holding tightly to it as mine. It's weird, like, those are the times when I realize that God provides for all of my needs and more. Like, this is going to sound kind of like prosperity gospel. Like, if you give to God, he's going to give back to you tenfold. And I'm not, like, trying to make those kind of promises or anything like that. I don't really think that that's, like, the one-for-one relationship that it works. And really, if you're giving just to get back from God, I really don't think he's, like, that easily tricked, right? But, man, those seasons when I'm willing to say, like, God, all of this is yours... Help me make these difficult financial decisions that I have so that I can actually serve your kingdom best. That's when I'm not worrying about what I'm going to eat that day. That's when I'm not stressed about these terrible decisions that I have to make. All of my needs end up being provided for. It's one of those things that you really don't know until you know. That's what's crazy about it can't like pitch somebody else on it that like God likes to provide for you if you actually let him be God and you just be a person but it's true Proverbs 3 9 and 10 says this honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine that sounds pretty cool right truly is the best way that you can take a small step towards offering what you have to God, to actually honor him first with your first fruits of all of your your, uh, produce. Give first to God, not seeking to have full barns or bursting vats, whatever that means. Seeking first the kingdom of God with your finances, and then all these things, everything else that you need will be added to you, will be given to you. So here's financial audit question number two. Do your finances serve you or the kingdom of God? This one's going to be tough to just sit here and arbitrarily answer while we're all just sitting here in this room. But especially if you're able to sit down and take a hard look at your budget, ask, what kingdom is it serving? Is it the kingdom of God or is it the kingdom of you? What's more important when you look at your budget? I always think about this. uh, I I loved econ in school. 
because, and I was like really interested in, in people and stuff like that. And so I was like taking psychology classes and sociology classes. And then I would go into econ and I'd be like, okay, so all of that garbage was just like ideas about people. This tells us how people actually act. Because you can trace it, right? You can like follow the dollar and say like, hey, we invest in what we care about. You can do that with your own budget. Pull up your own budget and say, what is more important to you? Taking care of your own needs or taking care of others? What's more important to you? Investing in your safety, stability, future, things that you know are gonna be around for a little while or investing in the kingdom of God, which is eternal. Ultimately, all of us have to ask the question, what's more important to us, serving ourselves or serving the kingdom of God? And here's the deal. That might sound kind of like accusatory. I was saying like you, 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 and that. This is one of those things that we're gonna have to ask ourselves a question and honestly, I truly believe this, unless you're some sort of like, you know, magic enlightened saint or something like that, some sort of super Christian, if you look at your budget and are not like convicted just a little bit that like more of what you have could be going to serve the kingdom of God, then I'm fearful that you really haven't looked hard enough. I hope this doesn't come across as like some sort of like guilt inducing, like go and find out how horrible you are kind of thing. I hope instead that you're willing to take a long and hard look and actually invite Jesus into a process of, of managing your money and your budget, which is something we typically don't. Finally, Aggie prioritized righteousness over money. He prioritized righteousness over money. I love verse 9, the way that he concludes this prayer. He says, Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Do you see his motivation here? He's saying, like, I want the right amount of money that is going to cause me to sin less. That's kind of weird. Nobody ever, like, you know, wants that, whatever that income target is. Like, nobody's ever like, oh, that's exactly how much I want to make. Nobody ever walks into, like, a salary negotiation, and they're like, well, that might be too much. I don't want to sin a lot, so... He paints a picture of two sinful uh, possibilities, sort of two ditches on either side. One is being so poor that he turns to theft. Now, <clears throat> I want you to take note of something here. I don't think that he's implying that being poor will necessarily force him to steal. Uh, neither is he implying that being full and having all that he needs is going to cause him to deny God, but he's saying that there is a temptation in both of those sides. And he's saying that his first priority here is righteousness, and so let the amount of money that he has sort of follow after that. I also want you to notice on this idea of being so poor that he steals, uh, especially for all of us bootstrapping Americans. I know it's 4th of July, and I shouldn't say anything like this, and I'm sorry about that, but it sounds to me like the Bible's book of wisdom here is implying that if a person is poor enough, they will be incentivized to break the law. Now, I don't want to go full-on communist here and tear down the proletariat or anything like that. I'm just saying that a verse like this actually helps me have a little bit of sympathy that one of the wisest people that, you know, like Solomon decided, hey, we should collect this guy's wisdom and pass it down to other people, is saying to us that maybe someone who's living in deep poverty would want to break the law. Like, that they might be incentivized to actually steal to just provide for their needs. This should give us a little bit of sympathy, I think. And I don't want to just sort of like, I don't know, I'm, I'm like dancing very close to getting some political kind of discussions here, which I hate doing. 
<clears throat> but at least gives us sympathy for like why someone might try and do something that we would call illegal, uh, that we would even call sinful, uh, just out of poverty. It gives me a little bit of a pause before I start judging very harshly someone who like maybe even illegally comes into this country to support their family. Like the thought process of being so poor that you're worried about having to pay to like put food on the table for your child makes it very difficult to be sitting on this side and just be like, well, that person is awful and we need to kick them out because they've done something wrong. Now look, I'm not, again, not trying to get super political. I don't want to tell you how to vote or anything like that. I have no solutions to this. I just have a little bit of sympathy. It gives me a little bit of sympathy before I judge the 15-year-old growing up in poverty that chooses to join a gang because he sees no other option for his life and for his stability. For these and many other cases of people living in poverty, we need to work to find creative and just solutions, but we also need to work to find grace-filled solutions to these type of problems. And here's the thing that I think we just need to, like, I, I think this verse is presenting to us, is that if we can help people to climb out of poverty, that also is a path to justice for them, that the two things are not unrelated. Augur has the ability and the foresight to see here that being poor might cause him to be more tempted to sin. And so maybe, especially if you're like a killer budgeter and you're already giving a lot to the kingdom and you're already investing in the kingdom of God, maybe the takeaway from this sermon today is even like, hey, I should actually help other people to transition out of a life of poverty as well so that they might live more righteous and just and God-honoring lives. Anyway, that's over. Augie also says that to steal would profane the name of my God, that to steal would be an embarrassment to the God that he serves. Just imagine uh, if your company hired like an outside marketing firm and they uh, walked in, they gave you this great pitch, you're like, wow, I like these guys, and then they leave and you realize that your Keurig is gone, right? You're like, company, like, you know, coffee machine is out and somebody just took it with you and you're like, did they, do you think they took our, like, coffee machine, right? You would probably judge that company pretty harshly. You wouldn't just be like, well, that was a weird guy that stole our machine. No, you'd be like, we're not using that marketing company. They stole our Keurig. I think what he's saying here is like, if he started stealing because he was so poor, this would actually reflect pretty poorly on God. Here he is a follower of God. God's supposed to be supplying for all of his needs. He says, man, I am working for the boss and yet I don't have enough money. And so now I'm stealing. That would profane the name of God. A Christian who steals makes God, his leader, and his provider look bad. Aggie is also worried about being too wealthy, which we've all been there. Just the other night, Sarah and I actually took a look at our budget um, and, you know, talked about it and re-upped it and everything like that. And then I laid down, and uh, after a few minutes, I noticed that Sarah, this is like we're going to bed, I laid down. Sarah was still awake, which doesn't really happen all that often. Uh, she's a pretty hard sleeper. So I leaned over, and I was like, hey, boo, what's wrong? What's going on with you? What are you worrying about? And she said, holding back tears, we have so much money, and I don't know what to do with it all. Okay, this is not a true story. I don't, do you guys think I'm rich? Like, no one has laughed at my wealth jokes yet. Like, I don't know what's going on. If you need to see how much money I make, it's really not uh, an astounding amount. I had no idea I was, like, putting off this, like, living large kind of lifestyle. I say all this to say, like, nobody is worried about making too much money, right? Like, nobody has ever said, well, I don't know if I want that promotion. That's going to be too much money for me. I don't know if I want to, like, close this deal. That's going to be a lot of money for me. 
This is what Agur is concerned about. Verse 9 says, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? He's worrying about having so much he might forget who God is. He might lose focus on God. And if you've lived for five minutes in this world, you know that that is a real possibility, that the more wealth you have, the more control over your environment and surroundings that you have, the less you actually feel like you need God. In fact, it's even the less that you might think a God even exists, right? There's so much higher of a temptation for the wealthy to believe that God doesn't exist and they have no need of him. Augur is actually worried about this. Check out this proverb, Proverbs eleven twenty eight. This was one of the things where in an earlier draft of this sermon, I had like 20 minutes just going through all the different ways uh, that Proverbs cautions us about wealth. But check this one out. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Do you see the contrast here between riches and righteousness? You really have to decide which one you want. Every day is a call to decide who you will serve, which one you will chase, which one your life is all about. There were also a lot of Proverbs, and I didn't have time to go into all of these, but there were also a lot of Proverbs talking about sort of like the benefits that riches bring. And in fact, there are many Proverbs that even uh, suggest that wisdom and living wisely, living righteously, actually leads to you having riches. But at the end of the day, you have to do exactly like Augur's doing here and decide which one you're going to chase after first. If you chase after riches over righteousness, that is a path to greed. And if you chase after righteousness over riches, that is a path to God supplying your every single need, giving you your daily bread, giving you food that is needful for you. Jesus puts this difficult decision this way. He says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? We need to live with this deadly level of seriousness. Like, did you realize how heavy that is? In this kind of silly sermon about money, Jesus sneaks in here and he says, like, what good will it be if you get everything this world has to offer but lose your very soul? Now, remember, you don't have to tell Jesus about the gospel. He gets it. He invented it, okay? You don't have to preach the gospel to him. He knows that, like, you know, deciding to follow Jesus, accepting his good news of salvation and his death on the cross for your sins, that's not a financial decision. And yet, he is pitting these two things against each other because he knows that at some level, your soul and the things that you own, the things that you, that you think of as yours are like connected. Now, he knows that the only way to heaven is actually through him, but he says this to us because he knows that this is going to be a temptation that actually draws us away from him. He knows, uh, knows that some of us would sell our very soul to have more money, to have more things. We would sell something eternal for something so temporary. Step number one in this entire thing in thinking about money has to actually be in turning your entire life over to Jesus. If you haven't done that yet, you really are choosing a lot of vain and temporary and simple and small things instead of eternal life and satisfaction and joy and peace that Jesus offers. God is after your soul. He wants you to be with him forever. And to have something as paltry and small as money get in the way of that is just nothing short of tragic. 
The difficult thing here is that nobody ever sits down, and they've got like a dollar bill on one side and like a you know little Jesus icon on the other, and they're like, hmm, which one of these will I choose today? Nobody does that. And yet, you could probably come up with millions of examples of people that have actually chosen to follow the way of riches and wealth over the way of Jesus. And if it's true of other people, like it's the epitome of pride to assume that it's not true of you and me. We each need to take, keep a constant eye on ourselves and the relationship that we have to our money and our things to make sure that we are not putting them before Jesus. <clears throat> There's actually a song uh, by John Foreman that I think about a lot. Um, and he's not actually singing about money so much in this song, but I, I feel like it's appropriate here. It's called Let That Be Enough. He asks God uh, over and over throughout the chorus, he says, let me know uh, that you hear me let me know your touch. Let me know that you love me. And let that be enough. I think this is the difficult prayer that Augur is trying to pray here. He's not only praying that he would do right. He's asking that he might be satisfied in actually chasing after the right thing, actually doing the right thing. So the final financial audit question is, do you care more about following Jesus or having money? The interesting thing about this question is it's not, would you rather be wealthy or be a nice guy? It's, would you rather follow Jesus, chase after his righteousness, than have money? This is the question that we all have to ask ourselves each and every day. Here's what I want to do as we close. Um... As always, you have the opportunity to respond in three ways. The first is through taking of communion, which we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, celebrate his forgiveness for our sins. You take the juice, uh, which symbolizes the blood of Christ, the bread, which symbolizes the body broken for you. And we do this in remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Secondly, we're going to sing. Um, so whenever you are ready, you can spend as much time uh, with God as you want. Uh, and then uh, whenever you're ready, you can join the rest of us in singing together. And finally, there'll be people uh, in the back who are ready and willing to pray over you uh, and pray for you. But what I want to do now as we close is I actually want uh, us all to sort of join in this prayer uh, of Agur. If you believe it, if you want it to be true of you, if you want to actually live with this biblical idea of our relationship with money, uh, then I'm going to invite you to pray this with me out loud. I think we're going to put it right up there on the screen, Proverbs 30, uh, 7 through 9. There it is. So just right there in your seat. You don't have to stand up or anything like that. Join in praying with me the prayer of our Lord. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Amen. This time is yours. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard.
Unfortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.